And the title is Love and Glory, right? And yes, did contemplate playing scenes from Gladiator and Braveheart for this message. <clears throat> but I decided for the sake of time, I'll just tell the story very descriptively. I'm just kidding. If you haven't seen Gladiator or Braveheart, that's your fault. I'm just referencing it. And you are culturally unaware and you live in a bubble. <clears throat> or you were homeschooled <laughs> and never got released from that bubble. <laughs> what is going on here? Raise your hand if you're homeschooled and seen the Gladiator. We got a lot of hands up in here. Well, I got five hands over here, boy, so... My point is made. <laughs> All right. The point is, this idea of love and glory, to me, is the biblical inspiration for the mission. Right? Why are we on mission for love and glory, according to Scripture? And it's these two things that are meant to drive us, and it really feels like it goes in line with what God's been saying and doing, because it's really easy to lose sight of our motivations when our own flesh and our own desires start to speak up loudly, right? It's very easy. Gets cloudy real quick. Gets foggy real quick. Gets selfish real quick, right? Like that's just the human experience. And both love and glory are two things that are complete anathema to selfishness. They are polar opposites. You can't have love or glory while being selfish, right? The definition of love, this biblical love, is literally selfless acts. It is a selfless love. Glory is the result of selfless actions. No one has ever been glorified in history for selfish deeds. And when you look at love and glory and you recognize what I was, I was just looking through Scripture and saying, like, man, this thought stood out to me as I kept reading some of the things reading through some of the Psalms, and then I was reading this gospel passage with Jesus. And I just had this thought, like, man, glory seems to be the currency of eternity. And so I, I looked through it, and I think I found enough evidence in Scripture to say that fairly confident, that glory is the, the seeming currency of eternity. In other words, gold is not going to be a currency in eternity. The, the, the scriptures describe gold as being so abundant in heaven that the streets are made of it. and Everything's made of it. It's like, it's not rare in heaven. Like heaven is, is described as being made of this stuff. But glory is something that even in the throne room of God, we see being exchanged. On earth, when Christ is here, we see it being exchanged. We see it being the very heartbeat of God, and it's his sole mission. God is after being glorified. That's why he's done everything. He's done it all for that reason, to be glorified. When you read the entire scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament, the prophets are constantly pronouncing their judgments and having things being corrected and made right for his namesake. For his namesake, where God is saying, for my own namesake, I am doing this, right? Quoted a couple weeks ago, John Piper's famous quote, which 
is incredibly biblical. It says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And we talked about why that is biblically true, how us being satisfied in God brings him the most glory, right? When the principalities and powers and rulers in the air and the angelic hosts and all of creation look and they see broken human beings turning away from their broken cisterns and their their dead idols and turning and putting their full hope and faith and finding all their satisfaction in God, it glorifies him. And it glorifies him in a way that's really hard for, for these selfish things to understand. That these people would turn from their own selfishness and their own desires and find their full satisfaction in this God who's requiring selflessness. That is amazing. What a feat. And so it brings him glory. We were singing the song, For He Alone Is Worthy, right? And we're singing it and we're getting ramped up and our spirits are being stirred. And you could tell like just the, the general pulse of, of the gathering here kind of really escalated there. Like it was something that we connected with and we were like, yes, you alone are worthy. And it's like, yes, he is. Of what? What's he worthy of? And that's the essence of the value of that song, right? We're all, we're expressing that. We're singing for you alone of worthy. And the, the assumed conclusion to that is of everything. But specifically in scripture, it says glory, honor, power, the kingdom, right? Like it's, these are the key elements that we see in scripture focusing on. He alone is worthy of that. And again, I was thinking of this throughout the week in my prayer time. And I wrote this note. I said, people receive glory for the things they excel in. Right? Like we, we give glory to the people who excel in things. Sports stars. Tom Brady in New England is glorified. Right? His fans and people, they glorify him. They give him glory. When you mention Tom Brady, you have to, you have to associate him with the greatest of all time. People will stand in line for hours in the rain to get his autograph. Just stop and think about that idea for a second. Some of us have whole collections of autographs. We've never actually stopped to think about what the value of it is. If you guys want to come up, I'll give you my autograph. Who wants it? You want to line up? What's the value in it? I'm going to use this pen with some ink. I'm going to write my name in a scribbly way. You can't read it. You have to compare it to another version to see it. it's actually the same signature, right? It'll just be a big S and some squigglies. And then you'll just have to believe that's my signature. But you will take that signature. You'll enclose it in protective material. You put it on a trophy case. Not mine, Tom Brady's. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Someday. So you got Tom Brady's signature right there. And then to make it even more glorious, you might have a shirt he wore during a game. <laughs> An actual shirt that touched Tom Brady's pads. 
during a game. And then he signed it. And that is the height of my collection. And then here's where we just escalate the glory. If you wanted to sell that, you could sell it for like a gazillion dollars. And people will bid on it and fight over it and auction over it. Because this thing is valuable. Like really valuable. It's worth a lot of my money. Without ever stopping to think of why. Like really digging deep. Why? Well, because he's the greatest of all time. Shirts are just shirts. You can, you can go buy a Patriots uniform, but Tom Brady wore this one. He's worn like a thousand other ones too, but he also wore this one. And he played a game in it, and he put his name on it. It's only valuable because we glorify this guy. And we only glorify him because he excelled in something we value excelling in. We've tried it, and we can't do it. We know that. Because in comparison to what we know we can and can't do, it is impressive to us that he can do that and he can do it at the level that he does it at. And then we glorify that. We esteem that. We honor that. We value that. We recognize that. We praise that. We worship that. And he is glorified because of the amount of people who recognize that. And you can pick anyone else, too. Pick, you know, a famous composer or a famous dancer or a famous artist or a famous musician or a famous movie star. There's any of them. There is so much glory being given all over the place at all times. Because we give glory to the things that are excellent meaning they excel, right? So we're glorified or we receive glory for the things we excel in. And then we have God, who in philosophical terms is described as this maximally great being, meaning like he is maximally great. There, you can't get greater than maximally great, right? Like that's the language being used and that's the reason it's being used, is to say he is maximally, if there's an area that can be great, he is maximally great in that area. So that is how you define God in the philosophical world. The being that is maximally great. And that's the end of the conversation. Well, God is the most excellent in all things. He excels the most in all things. And therefore, he's the one that's worthy of all the glory. There is no one else in any area of existence in any way, shape, or form that excels as much or more than God. If we recognize that, if we, if we lived with that as a centerpiece of our reality and continually reminded ourselves of that, we'd find it really, really hard to keep glory for ourselves or to give glory to anyone or anything else that God was not glorifying. Like it would be really hard to do. 
because we'd be like, well, in comparison, right? Like if I go outside and I start throwing a football around, and you know, I was pretty good in high school and in college age, you know, like I could chuck the ball, I could throw this piece of steak over the mountains if I wanted to. <clears throat> I'll let you Napoleon Dynamite fans get the joke out. Uncle Rico, seriously, I expected more laughter there. <clears throat> okay, if you see the videotapes of Uncle Rico that he was sending out of his highlight film, and then you compared that to a video of Tom Brady, you would have a hard time giving any glory to Uncle Rico. Right? It, it just wouldn't be natural. You wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even find any sense of giving value to Uncle Rico there. It just wouldn't happen. So if we are genuinely walking in this maximally perspective of God, like he is the most excellent in all these things, it just naturally wouldn't happen that we would be glorifying anything else above him in any way, shape, or form. It wouldn't happen that we would receive glory for ourselves as if we did something great. If we were recognizing that it was not me, but Christ in me, we would not find it hard to resist taking glory. It would be the most natural thing to always give glory. It's, it's the, the reason why we sing, the reason why we connect with this idea, right? But instead, like Paul said, as a human body, as, as humans, what we've done is we've taken the glory that belongs to the creator and we've given it to the created things, right? This is what Romans tells us, Paul crit critiques us for, that we have taken the glory of God and we have given it to the created things. And that's idolatry. And this is like the center rub of humanity. It just looks different in every age and in every generation. Idolatry takes different forms, right? We, we don't have, you know, golden statues of the goddess Artemis set up that we make, you know, we worship. Instead, we have framed pictures of an autographed jersey of Tom Brady that we worship. We have family portraits that we put there and we worship our family. And we worship our accomplishments and our careers and our jobs. And there's so many different forms of idolatry that we're blinded to that we don't recognize we're walking in because it doesn't look the way it does when the Bible talks about it. But it's there. It's ever-present. It's this idea. But here's the thing that, that, that we can rest assured in is this, that ultimately God will share his glory with no one. Right? He will not share his glory with anyone. And so we can give it to him willingly or we can have it removed from us unwillingly. There's a great reward for those who do it willingly. The scriptures tell us that God will literally honor us. He will give us honor. It's his good pleasure like any father to give honor to his children. But that is the response of a people who glorify God. And just laying a quick foundation here, right? Like when we see Signs in heaven, in, in the book of Revelation, right? John is shown some visions of the throne room of heaven. And there he sees the 24 elders. And the 24 elders are wearing their crowns that they have earned 
and that God himself has bestowed on them as a gift and sign of honor to honor them before the people. Not everyone is going to have those crowns. You understand? When, when this life is over and God has restored all things and Jesus is ruling and reigning on this earth in the midst of us, there are going to be lots of different tiers of rewards. No one, there will be no participation trophies when Jesus returns. We can know this, though, that God will be just and good and right and fair, and everyone will have exactly what they deserve in God's eyes. Right? This isn't a salvation issue. We're saved by grace through faith, and that's it. But the rewards is a totally different thing. And these elders who are, have been bestowed the honor of these crowns, it says that they are continually getting glimpses of God in his glory and recognizing, ah, uh, no. And they take their crowns and they cast them at the feet of the one who is worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, right? And it's this exchange, and this is what I'm saying, the currency of heaven. These elders, what else do they have to offer the God of heaven and earth who is revealing himself in glory right before them? The only thing they have to offer is the honor they've been given. The glory that has been bestowed on them from the Father, they say, ha, this is all I have to worship you with. Take it. It's the currency of worship in heaven is all glory goes to you continuously, just continuously. The angels who literally dwell in the presence of God, the uninhibited, unrestrained glory of God. And these angels are circling around the throne room. And every time they come around, they declare, holy. They see the Lord and they see something new and all they can do is declare he's holy. They're glorifying God with every single rotation of worship. And that's not a forced thing. It's because God is a maximally great being. Meaning there is no end to his glory, to his holiness, to his beauty, to his wonder. You can circle his throne for eternity and every time you come around, see a new level and element of his glory, of his holiness, of his beauty, of his majesty. When John's describing Jesus in the throne room, he says this, and it's easy to miss this because we're in a totally different culture. But he says, the throne room, right? This massive thing, he describes it as mad. There's, there's thousands upon ten thousands upon ten thousands of people, like the sea, filling this place. That's how big this area is that John's in. And he says, in this place... There's thunders and lightnings, a rainbow over the throne, and there's angels flying cherubim. And he says the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And you're like, wow, that's impressive. That's a big, big train, right? For, for those of us who think about that, we're like, okay, the train of his robe, that was probably inconvenient. How do you walk with a train that big? But... This is the part that unlocks the whole meaning of that statement is that for kings, the longer the train of their robe, the more glorious it was, 
right? It signified the height of their rule. The more enemies they've conquered, they would extend the train of their robe at each victory and each conquering. And so that the longer the train, the more glorious the robe of the king. And so John looks and sees Jesus and he says, the train of his robe filled the entire temple. This entire massive area was just filled with the glory of God, the train of his robe. And so we see this expression. This is the whole vision that John's giving is for this purpose, to highlight the massive, uncalculable amount of glory that God deserves. And that in uninhibited heaven, he is given all of it. And so we see the elders cast their crowns. When Jesus comes and walks on the earth, those who recognized him for who he was, they gave him the glory. The, the, when the woman come and washes his feet with her hair, that was another demonstration example of the glory of a woman was her hair, her long hair, and she washes cow dung off his feet with it. In other words, like my glory is worth nothing if not to wash poop off the feet of the Savior. Right? That was a justifiable use of her glory to give it to him for whatever purposes she saw fit. But again, as humanity, we've decided to give the glory of the creator to the created things. And it's idolatry in its worst form. It's complete mockery of, of God. We've allowed his glory to be usurped. And I say that we've allowed it, right? Because we're the church. It's our job to glorify God in the church so that that glory is seen and it begins to spread across the entire earth until the entire earth is filled with the train of his robe, with his glory. That's the mission of the church. We're to be glorifying God. But instead, we have allowed his glory to be usurped by so many other genuinely not glorious things. And there's a lot here. There's so much like when you get into like the history of the principalities and powers and rulers and stuff, there's a lot of vying for glory there. And it's impressive, but we don't have time for that. I wanted to go into, I want to read this verse just so you can see what Jesus says about this. This is the verse I was mentioning before. Jesus in John 12 is predicting his death, his crucifixion to his disciples. And he's trying to just tell them, this is what's going to happen. It's tough. And he's wrestling with it. Jesus is coming really, really close. And so Jesus, in verse 27, he says this to them. Now my soul is troubled. That's just a, a, a wild statement to hear the Son of God saying. Like, this is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in Christ Jesus. And this God-man, just thinking about the death he's about to have to confront, says, now as I think about this, as I tell you about this, my soul is troubled. Just think, soul, that's your emotions, that's your will. This is your mind, your will, your emotions, it's where you feel, right? It's, it's who you are uniquely. You are a soul, okay? And Jesus is saying, my soul who I am, what I'm feeling is troubled at even the idea of what I'm about to have to endure. And he says this, what should I say in response to this troubled soul? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? 
And then what he says, it's like you see, even in the midst of his trouble, he says, but that is why I came to this hour. It would be wildly contradictory to my purpose for me to ask the Father now to save me from this hour when I know it's for this reason that I came to this hour. So instead, he says, no, back to the purpose. Father, glorify your name. Look at the, the contrast. He's like, there's two things battling with each other here. My selfish desires because of the trouble in my own soul, in my will, my mind, my emotions, the last thing I want to do is this. And not only do I not want to do it with my will, I also don't want to do it with my emotions. I also don't want to do it with my feelings. I also don't want to do it with my own desires. My entire soul is troubled over this. And what should I say? Please save me from this hour. That would be the very human response. And he says, but this is why I came to this hour. So instead, I'm going to say the opposite of that, which is the goal. Father, glorify your name. And that enough would be, that would be enough to preach the message. But God responds to the statement. And a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. And others said it was the voice of an angel speaking. And Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. And this to me is this powerful moment that we see again in the garden when Jesus is really confronted with the actual moment. And three different times his soul in that place of trouble says, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then you see he's like, but no, let your will be done instead. It's the same struggle and the same victory. And it's the same choice, which is I can either do what I want or I can glorify his name. And he makes the right decision each time and God's glorified. And as a result of that, Jesus is given a name that is above every other name. So that at, at the name of Yeshua, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that he is the glorified Lord. Do you see? Like God glorifies the son because the son's goal was to glorify the father. Because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And this is great, right? This is the, that's the end of the lofty part of the message. I want to bring you to, to my favorite section of scripture. This is the love and glory part, right? Like this guy in the Bible named David, you guys heard of him? You haven't, that's okay. I'm going to tell you all about him. <clears throat> David, I can't tell you David's whole story. If you don't know David's story, you're just going to have to look it up, okay? But David, one of the things he's famous for is he had this small group of dudes called his mighty men. 37 people in total, right? When it was all said and done, but for the most of it, it was the 30, right? It was a group of 30 guys. And these guys were like straight out of the movies, right? The movies were straight out of these guys' story, to be more accurate. 
And in these stories, right, I, I want to tell you who they are, and then I want to tell you origin story. And this is the point. This is where the application happens for us. David has these mighty men, and they're called the mighty men of valor. The Hebrew word is gibberim, right? It's just, it means a lot more in, in the Hebrew language than it does in English. If you look it up, it's like, it means like men of grit and fierceness and valor and glory and blood. Like these guys were legit. So David is this young boy who kills Goliath, takes down the giant, and he gets this reputation. And he's beloved among Israel, and he becomes one of the captains of Israel's army, and he becomes the armor bearer to the king himself, which is a big deal because an armor bearer's job was meant to keep his captain alive in battle, to watch the back of his captain in battle, which means the person who chooses an armor bearer says, I trust you, your skill, and your loyalty with my life. So being an armor bearer was a real high position of honor. To be an armor bearer to the king, the highest. And David gets recruited to be Saul's armor bearer. On top of that, when they're not in battle, David is also like conquering demons for King Saul with his, you know, worship. So he's super valuable to Saul. And he goes out there and he's conquering the enemy. You know, God's with him. He's doing mighty feats of victory. So much so that one time they come back from battle and the people of Israel are, it's Saul and David together. And they're chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, which is already high glory. But David, his tens of thousands, which is like, oh no, don't do that when the king's there. Like the king is to be most glorified. You do not glorify someone else above the king. But David had earned more glory than the king. And that was no bueno, no bueno. So Saul is like, enraged with jealousy, and he tries to kill him a bunch of times. And David, who was next in line, right, to be king, where the people of Israel practically are crowning him king while Saul's still king, he's the height of it. He marries the king's daughter by doing a great feat that Saul thought would get him killed, but he conquered it anyway. Um, too graphic for some years in here, so you can go read it in the Bible if you want. And he's now the king's son-in-law, He's the king's armor bearer. He's a captain of Israel. He's being sung about in songs already. And now Saul tries to kill him. Kill him. And David has to run. And he loses everything. Like every, everything. He is homeless and living in caves, running for his life from the king of Israel and the armies of Israel that the king leads. And what happens is a group of dudes go out and they rally to him and they meet with him and they become his group. And from this group become or emerge his mighty men. And I want you, I want to read just this short part in 2 Samuel 23, what it says about his mighty men. Just so you know, like, you know I'm not making this stuff up. It says, these are the names of David's warriors. Josheb, the Tachimonite, was chief of the officers. He wielded his spear against 800 men he killed at one time. Stop. Don't just read over this. You stand here, and you be confronted with 800 men, and you're by yourself. You got separated in the battle because you're so awesome, your army can't keep up with you, right? And now you come up to the whole next wave of enemies, and there's 800 dudes, and it's just you and a spear. And you kill them all. 
on an 800 with your spear and you take them all out, right? This is John Wick stuff. This is, you know, Jason Bourne. This is, you know, all of it. This is him. He's, he's there and he's doing it. And he is the chief. But don't forget the name Josheb ever, okay? Your son should be named Josheb going forward, okay? The fact that there's no one with a son named Josheb is sad. If, if I had another son, his name would be Josheb. I'd learn to say his name correctly first. <laughs> and for hardcore people, you do the whole name, which is Josheb Bathshebeth. The, the Tachamonite. Anyway, he killed 800 guys at once. After him was a guy named Eleazar, son of Dodo. That's how we pronounce it. Son of Ahohai. And he was among three warriors that stood with David when they defied the Philistines. Now, just so you understand, the Philistines were the vastly superior army. They had steel weapons, iron weapons. The Israelites were, were vassals of the Philistines. They weren't allowed to have iron tools or weapons. All they had was copper weapons. I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with copper. It's not a great weapon, okay? But that's what they had to make their weapons out of. And then the captains and the chiefs, the people who would kill enemies, they'd pick up their weapons, and then they'd have, now they have a steel iron weapon, and, and they'd fight with it. But the point is, they're greatly outnumbered, and it's David, in this point, and three other guys, one of which is Eleazar, and they defied the Philistines. And this is what happened. And this is especially for you guys carrying any weight of leadership. This is like what's super encouraging. It's kind of what I use often in my life to strengthen myself in the Lord. I go to these stories and I look and I say, watch what happened. The men of Israel retreated in the place they had gathered for battle. Let's go to battle, guys. Oh, enemy's too big. And you turn around, and they're just running. And you turn, and you look at David and the other two guys who didn't run, and you're like, all right, right? And this is what they do, and it says this. The men of Israel retreated in the place they had gathered for battle, but Eleazar stood his ground and attacked the Philistines until his hand was tired and stuck to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. His hand was tired and stuck to his sword. I want, don't want you to miss this. I know you guys have, you know, when you were in middle school or whatever, you've done the whole squeeze your two fingers as hard as you can for a minute and then slowly try to let go, right? And you can't, your ligaments are so tight like your fingers won't open. If you haven't done that, you better be doing it right now. One minute, two fingers, squeeze as hard as you can for the next minute while I'm preaching. And then when you're done, slowly try to open your hand. Okay, he did this for an entire battle and his hand was frozen to his sword. His fingers would not open. That's how fierce it was. Your, your hands are in pain at that point, like real pain. And he never quit. And because he never quit, it says the Lord brought about a great victory that day because of their willingness to stand even alone, just the four of them. But this is what happened. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Then the troops came back to him, but only to plunder the dead. Oh, this was awesome. Look what the Lord did. I love these testimonies. Let me get some of that loot over here. Yeah, need that. Look what we did as a body. Yeah. This is real. It's, it's the same throughout every generation. 
Here's the next story. After him was Shema, son of Agi the Hararite. The Philistines had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. Lentils was like a really easy to grow, cheap, light food that they lived on, right? Like it was not a wealthy food, but this is what like, you know, blue collar people lived on back then. It wasn't super valuable is the point. Like a lentil field was not very valuable. It was not like a flourishing vineyard back then, okay? A flourishing vineyard would sell for like a bazillion dollars and a field of lentils would sell for like two donkeys and a hug, okay? So that's the point. That's why it stresses this here. It wasn't super valuable, but it was his. And it says, had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. The troops fled from the Philistines again, but bye bye again. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it, and struck down the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. Now listen, David's mighty men had hundreds of stories like this, and the scriptures choose to highlight five of them. Five of them. Three of them are about standing your ground when everyone else leaves. Trusting God regardless of what the people around you do, holding ground, standing firm, enduring, persevering, and doing it no matter what. Why? Because you weren't doing it for anyone else. You, these guys were doing it for the love and glory of God. Right? This was Israel, the Lord of the armies of Israel. His name was at stake. His reputation was at stake, and they were going to stand to defend that glory. And God brings about a great victory each time. Now, here's the part that leads us to the conclusion, where we get to the origin story. This story right here, three of the 30 leading warriors went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, which is where they were hiding, or Adullam, while a company of Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David was extremely thirsty and said, man, if only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. Now, this wasn't a statement of manipulation. Right? A lot of us are very familiar with tactics like that. Right? This was David who grew up in Bethlehem. It's his hometown. But it had been taken captive by the Philistines. And David is up in the caves. Right? And what, what was happening during this battle time was there was a famine. Right? And a drought in Israel that lasted like three years. It was, it was a wild time. And David is just saying like, He's lamenting about his hometown. How many of you guys read the Psalms? So we know who David is, right? Like David, he laments a lot, right? Oh, and he's very poetic and artsy and, oh, I wish I could drink water from the well of Bethlehem, right? He's, he's lamenting over his hometown. He's, he's very emotive and expressive. But it's okay. He's a bloody warrior too, so he's allowed to be, okay? I always say, you can wear tight rolled pants if you want as long as you're, you're a warrior too. Okay. Anyway, here's the scene, guys. His mighty men are with him. Three of them are up there. And he's lamenting about his hometown being captive. Oh, have a drink from the well. Well, what happens is these three dudes hear David lamenting. And they say, we're going to do that. 
We're going to get him water from that well in Bethlehem. And so these three guys, they go down alone. They bust through the whole garrison of Philistines, fighting their way through. I don't want you to think like, this isn't a cartoon. This is real life. These guys had to fight their way through a garrison. Get to the well. Scoop water out. It's a well, guys. It wasn't a faucet. Okay? From a well. Get the water up. Now, the only way I can picture this happening is either they were super fast and beat them there with plenty of time, or two of them are fighting off the Philistines while the other one's like pulling up the water, putting it in the thing. And then they have to fight their way back out and then outrun the Philistines with the water. They get back to David. And this is, this is the, the scene we see. Because it says, so three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp, drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem, and they brought it back to David. But David refused to drink it. You're like, what, David? You're doing it wrong. <clears throat> Except he wasn't. This is what he says. David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord, which again, you're still like, no, David. David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. Is this not the blood of men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it and instead poured it out to the Lord. This is what David recognized. That these people presented a sacrifice of their life for the sake of love and glory. And they went and did this deed because they loved David and their men of valor. Glory is their currency. Death is a welcomed cost in exchange for glory for these type of people. And he brings, they bring this, and David says he knows what they had to do to get this water. And he says, there's no way I can accept a sacrifice like this. There is only one who's worthy of such a sacrifice, and he will get this water, not And you see David's heart recognizing that there is only one who's worthy of such glory. There's only one who's worthy of such worship, of such love and adoration and sacrifice. He recognizes the men. He honors them. He's the one writing this stuff and telling, like, these were my mighty men of valor. But what they offered, no man can accept rightly in the face of the God of glory that we worship. This sacrifice belongs to him and him alone. And he pours it out. Look at that, guys. That's these guys. These are them. When it goes on, it tells another story of, of Benaiah who, who does these exploits. He's killing giants. He goes down into a, a pit on a snowy day, and he one-on-ones a lion, right? Like, just kills the lion because it was plaguing the people. These are the mighty men. Listen, you can keep on reading. In 23, it talks about a lot of them. And you're like, wow, these guys were awesome. But I want to show you an origin story that there should be a movie about this. In 1 Samuel 22, this is what it says. This is when David was being chased by Saul and he's hiding in the caves and people, it says, read it here. While David was in the caves, it said his father and brothers came out to meet him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt 
and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. That's some great company. You're already at the low point of your life. You've lost everything. Your wife, your status as the armor bearer of the king and the son-in-law of the king is the one that they were just singing the praises of. And now you're a homeless wanderer, criminal, on the, being hunted in a cave. And the people who come to surround you are all those who are in distress themselves, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul, gathered to him, and it says, and he became their leader. Not only that, do you know how many of them there were? 400. 400 bitter, angry criminals running from the debt they owed. Just messed up dudes. These are men who are scorned, abandoned, desperate, men who have probably made a thousand mistakes. They're men who have behaved selfishly, reaping the consequences. They are men who have been written off by all of polite society. And these are the men David built an empire with. I want you to hear that, leaders. Hear that. Listen. This is who God uses. God took a bitter, lonely, desperate, sad, crying young man named David in the caves, and he made him the leader of 400 people like that. And then for about 10 to 14 years, he left them out there to grow together, to serve together, to fight together, to defend Israel covertly together, to go through hardships together. There were times where enemies invaded their camp and took their wives and children and all their wealth and ran off with it. And these vagabonds turned on David and wanted to kill David for it, for being such a bad leader that allowed this. And David, in that moment, he strengthened himself in the Lord, it says, and he said, we're going to get it back. And he led these guys all the way back, chased them down, and got everything back. Their wives, their children, their loot, and everything. These are the people in 1 Samuel 22 that in 2 Samuel 22 and 23 are referred to as the mighty men of valor by God himself in the scriptures. These are the men who fought 800 people by themselves and conquered. These are the men that had learned that when the army runs, it don't matter. Stand your ground. God is going to bring us victory. Look what he's done in our lives, right? This was David's own testimony. Why did he believe he could defeat Goliath? Because when he was just a young little shepherd boy, he watched God deliver bears and lions to him. And so he goes out, and it's no problem to fight the Goliath. Well, this vagabond host of depressed and bitter people had grown and learned that God was faithful because they stood their ground in little things time and time and time again in the caves, and they watched God bring a great victory, and they watched the, the guy who was leading them put on display as a demonstration that he would never quit. He sang songs of lament. He was discouraged often. Read his psalms. Oh, the waves of death surround me. The cords of shoal, they're dragging me into hell. Why was I ever born, God? What did you do to me? These are the things he's literally singing to the Lord in caves. And God is like, you're my dude. And these dudes around you, they're my dudes. 
And I'm going to make them the mighty men of valor that I'm going to make epic history through. So that's the origin story. What does any of this mean for us? This is what it means, guys. We can relate to all of that, I'm sure, at some point or another. By the way, David never became perfect. That bitter young man in the caves that had to learn and wail and put his trust in God in the worst situation, in the most discouraging situations, when it was time, you stepped out because you felt like God put it on you, right? Like you're part of the church of God. You're part of the family of God. And so you're like, I will take that responsibility and I will build teams and we'll make, we will carry this weight. And then you show up and the army has fled from you. And you're discouraged and you're bitter and you have two choices. You're faced with the choice of Jesus. You're faced with the choice of David. You can complain and let the enemy have a field day and begin to, to speak negatively about everything. Or you can stir yourself up in the Lord. You can sing songs of lament to the Lord about it. You don't have to pretend like it doesn't stink. But you sing to the Lord. You say, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to guard this field of lentils. And you're going to bring about a great victory, God. I'm trusting you in this. So this work that should have took one hour is going to take me six. And this stinks like nothing else stinks. But I know, God, you're going to bring a victory that the army that ran is going to watch and see. And they're going to look to my example. In no time, they may become mighty men of valor because of my choice to hold this ground. And that's what God does through those of us who are, are willing to say, God, let's do it. It's not me anyway. It's you doing it through me. I'm going to do this, and you're going to be glorified through it. And so the call is this. Hold the line. Why would we hold the line? The call is to hold the line. Just like the mighty men of valor did before they were ever known as mighty men of valor. They held the line with David. Wherever David said this line needs to be held, let's hold the line. They held the line. And God brought about great victories. He brought about great victories. I want you to understand that like David and the mighty men, that is what scripture records as mighty. Tom Brady is not what the scripture records as mighty. It's impressive, but it's not mighty in God's eyes. What God describes as mighty when you read these stories is holding the line, persevering in faith, never giving up, being faithful, being reliable, being dependable, being committed to the cause, and all of it motivated by love and glory. Do you understand? Because we have been loved with so great a love that we have no other option but to love back in return and serve him from this place of love, but also to achieve eternal glory. And that is not wrong as a goal. It's scriptural. He tells us to pursue it. But it's for this reason. So that we have something to worship him with. So that we have something to offer him as a gift, as worship. Because our lives are not a gift to him. Do you understand that? Our lives are no gift to him. He is a gift to us. And in response to so great a love, he continues to give us good gifts like any good father. And we take them and we enjoy them, but with open hands 
because when the moment comes when we turn and we look to him we must have something to offer him in worship and that something is the glory that he has been giving and allowing us to partner with him so that we can it's like gathering glory to offer to him right to direct to him so that when people come and they're like man how is it that you guys do this and we're like yeah it's a good question it's god this is how how are you guys such a close knit community when you're also screwed up because god is awesome that's why you want to join the prerequisite is you have to be screwed up as well we don't accept perfect people right are you going to be willing to be hurt you're going to tell me that these people described like that in the caves didn't absolutely hate each other many many times amen that's community that's life but when it's centered on Christ we have something to focus and to commit ourselves to for love and for glory to worship him because i can't wait for the moment where we see Jesus and we're able to offer him everything that he's done in us right it's like it's no different from Jesus himself he's coming back to receive the kingdom and what's he going to do with the kingdom he's going to give it to the father so the encouragement here is this this is an encouragement believe it or not we need to come to terms with the fact that most of us live in a bubble We do. We live in a Christian bubble. A lot of our kids are raised in a Christian bubble, and that's not a bad thing, right? It's a good thing. It is better to be raised in the household of God, loving God, being protected from the things that so many people aren't protected from. That's 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 optimal. But it's not optimal to stay there. At some point the arrows have to be shot out. And where they're being shot out, they're being shot out into the very dark and dangerous world. It is dangerous. It is dark. But are you going to shoot your arrows out to a place you're not willing to go yourself? This is what Jesus did. This is the model he put on display when he was pursuing his goal of glorifying the Father. Right? When he decided I'm not going to live according to my own selfish stuff, instead I'm going to live to glorify your name. He went for 30 years he was raised good Jewish home studying rabbi he goes out there he goes in gets baptized in the wilderness and he comes back filled with the power of the spirit and what does he do he goes into the dark and dangerous places he goes where the prostitutes are the drunkards are the the villains the tax collectors he gets accused of being a glutton and a wine bibber because of who he's saying he gets accused you can't be the messiah you're hanging around with sinners all the time but He first made sure that he was rooted and established in the word the father's love and in the holy spirit's power and then he went to be with them for the purpose of shining a light and drawing them through love into the mission That's the purpose we're moving towards something guys we're moving towards something and this is the equipping of that that's the glory part Okay? You will never get glory if you stay in the bubble of Christian uh community. I'm not talking about leave the community. I'm saying if you just 
your entire life is just like, I just always want to be in this safe and good place where we worship together, we sing together, we pray together, we work together, we serve together, we eat together, we go out together, we hang out together. There is a world that needs the firebrands burning. There is a world out there, and God says there is glory to be had. Go and get it. Do you understand? Like God glorifies in Scripture those who take a sinner and turn them back. He says, your name is great when you do that. What's he talking about? That's glory. It's not wrong to pursue that, especially when you have it in the light of eternity that I am building my currency to worship the Lord with. Right? And I know that could easily be taken stuff. It's not works. It's about what God gives you when you obey him. He loves to lavish good gifts on his children. And then his good children love to offer those gifts back. You ever seen little kids do that? Every year up until this year, because my daughter's old enough now, on my birthday, because they'd never, she, this one would never remember to get me a gift or a car. They would get wrapping paper, they'd go up into my bureau drawer, they'd take out my socks and my boxers and a shirt, and they would wrap them in a Christmas gift and they would come and they'd give it to me. And I'd open it up and there'd be my used socks, my used boxers, a shirt. Like, oh, thank you so much. What a good gift. I love this. Thank you. But it always reminded me of that. It's like, she had nothing else to offer me. She's not old enough to make money. She can't go to buy something. She, there's nothing else. So what did she do? She went to what is mine. She knew she had access for. She wrapped it up, and then she gave it back to me as a gift. And like, God, if this is not what I do in my life to you, I don't know what else is. But this is what it means. Like we're going out and we're earning glory for the Father to lift him up. Because at the end of that passage I read, it says this. I know you're still worse than I He says this. Uh, after he says, you know, glorify your name and he goes, he goes on. He says, it's for this reason that if I am lifted up, all men will be drawn to me and the Father will be glorified. And that's our mission. So that's the challenge. Let's, let's ask God to solidify this right now. The challenge is this. Oh, man, this is what I wanted to bring it all back to, this one statement. Are you living in such a way that God is being glorified? And for this, like I'm talking all the way down into your home, even for, for housewives who are homeschooling, you feel trapped in your house all day. Are you living in such a way that before your children, God is being glorified daily, right? Is your family seeing God being glorified through you? Do your actions, your behavior, your speech, do they bring glory to God in the midst of your family, in the midst of your social circles? Do your, does your activity, do your jokes, do your example, like do we bring glory to the Father in our examples? No one's going to be perfect in this. Nobody. But this is the goal. And when we recognize we're living in such a way that doesn't, we begin to shift and change. Does you... The way you live in your workplace, in your job, is the glory of God on your mind. Am I glorifying God? Am I bringing him glory? Am I living in such a way? This is the goal. This is like what we strive towards. Anyway, let's do that. That's what I want to pray into. Let's stand up. Let's ask God while these guys worship further and ask God to shift our mindsets towards this that would be bent towards his glory. That we'd be bent towards thinking 
about living in such a way that brings him glory. There's so many different ways, like when we're faithful in the little things, he'll make us faithful in much. So when you can do this faithfully in your own home, he'll begin to bring opportunities into your life or put you in public places where you can then do that in public on display. And in greater ways, as you earn trust before the Father, he'll put you in bigger and greater opportunities to bring glory to his name. And then the whole earth will be filled with his glory. That's going to happen. Maybe not in our generation, maybe not in our kids. Who knows when it's going to happen? But our mission is to build towards that until it happens. God, we thank you that you're faithful in all of this. God, that you have promised even that when we're faith, when we're not faithful, you remain faithful, God. Faithful to your word, faithful to your name, that you are the one driving and pursuing and bringing glory to your own name. God, we thank you for the opportunity to partner with this and to be part of it. Open our eyes to see your leading each and every day, God. Convict us deeply in the moments when we're living in such a way that not only doesn't bring glory, but maybe bringing shame. God, that we would stand up and be willing to repent in those moments and turn from that. And begin to live in such a way that our eyes are consumed with the pursuit of your glory. That you would be esteemed and you would be lifted up. That people would see your glory. That people would begin to see through your church that you're the one who's worthy of glory. That it would begin to feel awkward for them to give glory to any lesser being or any lesser thing. That it would become self-evident, God, that you are the one to be glorified. Do it, God, in this day and through your people. That in your church you'd be glorified and through your church in the world you'd be glorified. Begin to ask God for this, guys, deeply. Let your, let your soul that can so easily be troubled, let it also now in this moment be stirred up within yourselves to ask all sincerity and genuineness and desire for a heart that is led by a pursuit for his glory. And ask that in faith, believing that anything you ask in his name, you will have. Let's do that. Let's do it. Let's worship. It's 24-7 here, so we'll go forever. If you need to go, you can go, obviously. If you want to stay, stay. We're going to have prayer teams come up. Uh, as soon as they get their dose of glory pursuit, then they'll come up, which, which can be soon, hopefully. And then uh, continue to pursue his glory, guys. But right now, let's just go after it. Let's go after it. Let's not leave until we feel like the Holy Spirit sealed this thing in our hearts.